The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm your host, Dave Hennessy. First, a little housekeeping. Today's podcast is our first remote guest. Her name is Mary Gentili from the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia. So we got the Hennessy Report going global now. And I want to tell you about some of our great guests coming up for the summer. For Beach Listening, Fidelity Investments Head of Talent Acquisition, Paul Lesser. The Director of HR at Bright Horizons, Scarlett Abraham. Also, Scarlett is a fellow board member at NERA. Easy Caters CEO, Stefania Mallette. And MFS Investments, CHRO, Mark Leary. And here to begin our summer series, I Skype interviewed Mary Gentili, the founder of Giving Voice to Values, which is the curriculum now being taught in over a thousand business schools worldwide. And I learned about Mary through my interviews of two earlier podcast guests. As Mary wrote the Harvard Business School case about Russ Campanello, episode three, and she co-wrote the Simmons Business School case about Helen Drynan, and that was episode six. Mary is very influential in the world of values-based leadership, and she's a great storyteller. I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. And now I bring you my discussion with Mary Gentili. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you, Dave. I first learned about you and your work at an earlier podcast, two earlier podcasts, um, I interviewed Russ Campanello. Oh, yes. And I interviewed Helen Drynan. I think you might remember both of those people. Absolutely. You wrote, uh, I think they were both Harvard Business School cases at the time. Well, actually, I wrote the Harvard Business School case about Russ. And uh, Helen, I I co-authored a case that actually uh, we did through Simmons School of Management. Um, So, yeah. That's right, where Helen is president and just had her big leadership conference. That's right. So we were going to get into um, your your work and what you do, and I've certainly read about it and and seen your presentations on the topic. And one of the things I've learned is that as you were starting to teach ethics in the business schools, you realized that it wasn't so much about knowing what to do or knowing um, knowing that knowing what the values are that people believe in and knowing what's right and consistent with that, that wasn't the issue. It was more about how do people take action and live their values and, as you say, give voice to values. I was wondering before we get into that concept, because I want you to talk about it in a little bit deeper way, um, maybe we could find a little bit about your background. Was there anything even before you got into education that um, – an experience or some influence that kind of shaped who you are and um, kind of informs your work still today. Is there anything that you'd be willing to share? Uh, yeah, actually, um, it's interesting. Um, I've always seen myself as something of an introvert, um, perhaps even uh, somewhat sort of risk averse, not somebody who is actually seeking out arguments. Um, and uh, I also have been always kind of a an earnest person, I guess. And so I would, I would witness behaviors. I would witness treatment of people. I would experience treatment or, or behaviors myself that, that I was concerned about. 
But I kind of thought, you know, I'm not the kind of person who can actually act on this, even though I think this should be stopped or changed. I didn't feel empowered or skillful about it. And that was something that troubled me. It, it was you know, disappointing. I sort of accepted it, but it was disappointing. But I think at some level I didn't accept it because I was always searching for stories from people of how they handled situations. And I think the beginning of the work I do now, giving voice to values, really came from starting to hear from people about experiences that they had and how they handled them and realizing that you didn't need to be uh, a huge extrovert. You didn't need to be a huge risk taker. Um, you know, that, that could be, you could be those things, but that there were many different ways to act effectively on your values. And obviously this applies not just to ethical values, but to leadership in general. But that for me was kind of the, the motivating force, the kind of aha. Maybe you could give us uh, a little bit of an overview of giving voice to values. Um, it was new to me. Um, so I imagine there's some people in HR that haven't heard about your work. Um, I, I know it's well-traveled throughout the business schools. I think it's very, it's a core uh, curriculum in ethics training in business schools now. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, where it's come from and where it is today, your work. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I like to tell people that it basically, for me, developed out of kind of a, a crisis of faith. I'd been working in business schools, uh, originally Harvard Business School, and then I was at Babson for a while. Now I'm at the University of Virginia, Darden School of Business, but I've consulted to many other business schools. But a number of years ago, uh, in the late 90s, I guess, after having Having worked in this field for several decades, I, I began to feel that the way we were trying to teach about ethics in business schools and by extension in corporate training was uh, you know, ineffective at, at best and sometimes kind of hypocritical. Um, it felt to me that I, I like to refer to it as preach and pretend. <laughs> you know, we kind of preach about what the rules are and the policies and the corporate value statements, and then we pretend people know how to do it. Yeah. Um, and and I also saw that so often in, in corporate training rooms or in classrooms, we spent all our time talking about coming up with some sort of ethical decision-making framework as if people couldn't figure out what was right. And of course, that's true sometimes. There are a lot of complex issues that truly are gray. But there's many, many issues. Some of the most egregious scandals we've faced are situations where a lot of people actually knew what was right. They just didn't think it was feasible um, in their organizational context, uh, or it was too risky, or they would be unsuccessful. And so I started realizing that we were treating it as if it was entirely a cognitive issue, an intellectual issue of understanding, when a lot of it was more of a behavioral issue of how do we act effectively. And I just decided, let's create a new pedagogy, a new uh, curriculum approach. Um, it's, it's what I call the giving voice to values thought experiment, where we present scenarios to people, but rather than asking them what's right, they're post-decision making. The protagonist in the scenario has already decided what they think is right. And the question becomes, if you were that person and you thought what they thought, how could they get it done effectively? So you're giving people safety cover to actually apply apply their most skillful 
communication strategies, influence and power strategies, negotiations to the ethical position. I, I do this because I find that if you ask people what would you do in a scenario, you get three kinds of answers and none of them are that helpful. <laughs> you get the people who say, oh, I'd do the right thing, you know, and they may really believe it, but we know from the research that many of them won't for a lot of reasons. And you get the people who say, well, I know what you want me to say, but it's not possible. And then you get the people who argue with the premise and say, well, it's not even wrong. And none of those answers will get you to what I'm talking about, get you to actually rehearse and re-script and peer coach, develop a voice for enacting your values effectively. So we, 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 we do the thought experiment. We say, what if you were this person who wanted to do this? How could they get it done? And it kind of jumps over that unconscious barrier that we all have where we think, well, I'm not sure I would do it. I'm not sure it's possible, you know, too risky. We, we jump over that. Because right. I think get them to think like a consultant, right? Exactly, exactly. It's kind of a pedagogical sleight of hand. That's the approach, and I started sharing it. My goal was to get it into business schools, and it has, in fact, gotten into business schools. It's used all over the world now. I wanted it to not just be used in ethics classes. I wanted it to be an approach that could be used in a, an accounting class or a marketing class or a finance class, and that is, in fact, also happening. You know, it's uh, on my podcast, I'm noticing that the organizations that are really doing great things and have great leadership to be seem to be much more focused on values-based leadership. Are you noticing, are you feeling more optimistic about your work and where things are going with regard to values-based leadership? Yeah. Um, well, I would say, yes, I think that there is um, uh, an, a growing understanding that focus on values as opposed to simply a focus on ethics, as it's more traditionally defined, is a more empowering, a more motivating approach. I always tell people, I call it giving voice to values rather than giving voice to ethics, because ethics feels like some sort of external set of rules imposed from outside. It's a, it's about constraints on action, which doesn't really appeal to most business leaders <laughs> that I run into, whereas values is more aspirational. It's something that you care about, and it's appealing to what matters to you, and I think that that's more motivating. And I see that happening more broadly. There's many folks who have, um, work in this field, and I think there is this growing emphasis on, on values for those sorts of reasons. And, you know, one of the things I think is a good indicator is that when I first started getting invited to share this with companies, it was often the the uh, ethics and compliance people who would reach out to me. But now I get calls from talent management. I just came back from a program with the Caribbean Development Bank where it was their HR talent management people. Or I get calls from leadership. It was the leadership people at Unilever who brought me in to work in with some of their organizations in Nigeria and Ghana and South Africa. Or from senior leadership. I've been working with the president of a mid-sized multinational U.S.-based company, B2B, recently. And it, was, and it came from him. He'd heard me speak somewhere and wanted to bring this to his company. So I see that as a very good sign when it's it's not just coming from the ethics folks, important and essential as they are, but you know, it's great when they can 
be the people who uh, the management is going to and saying, you right. know, will you help us do this? We want it. But if you really want to make change, if you really want to have an impact, it usually means having to be a little more skillful at it. And one of the things that I, I point out to people is that people who are successful in organizations have great communication skills, great negotiation skills, power and influence skills, all of that stuff. And then when it comes to ethics, it's like it's a different animal. Now we have to have a defining moment where we test our character and they kind of dumb themselves down and they forget about all those skills they have and they think it's just about character or morality. And, you know, what I think is that if you can actually be plain to those strengths that you have, it it's becomes less of this kind of Herculean moral risk that you're taking and you're you're just acting as you normally act to, to influence behavior to make change to learn and to help others learn and and part of that means being willing to understand that some some of these issues are not it's not a matter of a one-off conversation where you're going to transform an organization you know it means having to have a, a plan an incremental plan often uh, building a set of allies you know the same way you would try and make any other systemic change in an organization why do you think most people don't do this on their own you know give voice to values why do you think it needs so much teaching and guidance is there something about cultures or well i guess first of all i'd say I, I wouldn't say that most people don't do it. I think we all do it to some extent. One of the core exercises in giving voice to values is something we call a tale of two stories. We ask people to reflect on a time when they have, in fact, effectively acted on their values, voice to values, and a time when they failed to do so. And that becomes a kind of a beginning to learn about what enables me, what disables me, and how I can maximize one and minimize the other. So I wouldn't say that we, but you know, we don't always do it in every aspect of our lives. We don't always feel empowered or skillful to do it. And um, I think when I interview people about times when they have or have not acted on their values, if I ask them, why didn't you when you didn't, they almost always say it's because they didn't think they had a choice. And so that's what I'm trying to do is to give people the opportunity to, to build the skill, to build the literal scripts, to rehearse, to practice, um, to feel like they have more options. They have more arrows in their quiver. Right. That's great. How have societal norms changed your work? What's happening in the world? That's a really and interesting question. I guess one of the things I'd say is that right now, I, when I first started doing this work, um, and GVV is now about, I call it GVV, giving voice to values, it's yes. now about 10 years old. Uh, when I first started doing this work, you know, people were really giving me questions about how does this encourage more business ethics, ethical business behavior. Then for a while there, it seemed like I couldn't give any sort of presentation or training without people asking, well, could this work? with my children? Could this work with young people in, in high school or, or, second, or elementary school? You know, people started wondering about passing it on to the next generation. Now, when I give this talk I can't, and, and do these presentations, I almost always get questions that have to do with, 
can this apply to our political context? Can this apply to, you know, our civic context? Because people are feeling that um, there are huge values issues that are being played out every day in the political arena and that the, the um, effectiveness of our public discourse seems to be waning. You know, people seem to be arguing more than communicating. This podcast is for HR. It's an HR podcast, and we have a lot of people listening that might be trying to make their organization more of a values-based leadership organization. How can they influence others inside their organization? We have kind of a protocol, a set of questions that we encourage people to think through when they're trying to figure out how to act on their own values, how to voice their own values effectively. And one of the questions is uh, always kind of confuses people at first, but it's where I ask them to think about what's at stake or what's at risk for the for all the affected parties, including the person or persons that you want to influence. And often people will think I'm asking that question because I want them to do a stakeholder analysis and decide what's right. And that's not what I'm doing. I mean, giving voice to value starts with this post decision making premise where we're we're starting from the fact that you you know you've done some thinking and you have this values based position. But um, by looking at what's at risk for the individuals that you would like to influence, a couple things happen. Number one, you test your own thinking. So, you know, if you are acting on a bias, it may become more relevant or more evident. Um, another thing is that it may give you some tools for communicating with that person because you'll begin to understand what they're worried about. <laughs> and that might give you an opportunity to reframe what you're asking, um, to try and reduce the risk that you're actually um, inviting them to take at a minimum acknowledging that you are asking them to take some sort of risk or pay some sort of price. Um, and it means starting from a place of respect. I've found that, especially when I go globally, it's just so important to not take the stance that I am here, I have my values and I'm giving them to you. It's more that I know you have values and I know that they're not always easy to act on. So trying to find the part in that person that you actually can connect with and play to that. It may be that there's a, a lot of their their behaviors that you cannot connect with or that you feel are, are opportunistic or even unethical, but if you can find that place where you, you're connecting to the common piece, um, that's what I find is most useful. It's just, it's, it becomes especially evident when I work globally because people will often say, oh, well, you know, the values are different here. And, you know, I've, I've looked at the research and of course, and I've traveled the world and I know that behaviors and, and contexts do differ. And you have to acknowledge the reality of the context. You can't pretend that everything's easy or the same. Um, but, but if you do start from that place of respect, what you can do is uh, understand from the research that there do tend to be a number of values that are pretty much commonly shared across cultures, across people. The thing is, it's a really short list. And so one of the things I talk to people is when, you're, when I'm trying to communicate with you about something like that, I need to appeal to a value that I know we share rather than presenting it within the context of what I care about. And that can be scary because it means I need to go to the place, not of giving up my values, but of really trying to understand um, where you're coming from. Sure. Can you give an, a, like an inspired example of giving voice to value in action, maybe inside an organization that you've really seen it make an incredible difference? 
people or a group of people? I had a really interesting experience when I was in Nigeria working with uh, Unilever. And this was, again, as I said, it was their leadership people who invited me in. And it was and, and they did an interesting thing. The leadership and the learning and leadership group within the company sort of put out a call and said, you know, we want to experiment with this approach, giving voice to values, who'd like to put up their hand and, and be the pilot site. And interestingly, it was the head of the Nigeria operations who, who raised his hand, um, a really impressive guy. And um, so I went to Lagos and spend a, spent a week or so sort of gathering stories and trying to understand the context. And then the idea was, the original idea, which later changed, was that I was going to go back a few months later. We were going to have, they had identified a group of uh, change champions, they called them, who uh, I was going to train them, and then they were going to cascade the approach throughout the organization. And we had a series of online interactive modules that they completed first, you know, six modules, and then I came and was going to spend a couple days with them. And the idea was I would spend a couple days with these change champions who were kind of high potential middle managers, and then I'd spend maybe an hour or an hour and a half with the senior leadership team just to socialize them to the idea, you know, not to really do a training. Well, interestingly, a few weeks before I was supposed to go to Lagos, they called me up and they said, well, we'd like to suggest a change. We would like to have the senior leadership, the entire senior leadership team, which was about 10 folks, attend your entire training <laughs> with the change champions. Now, this was, you know, as you know, working in this field, this is what you want, right? But you never get it. And so on the one hand, I was thinking, wow, what a great opportunity. On the other hand, I was pretty scared because I thought, I don't know how this is going to go. And what was inspiring to me is what actually happened. And the senior leadership and this 35 hand-selected high potential middle manager spent the day and a half with me. And, you know, we did the introduction to GVB and all of that. But then when we got to the classic giving voice to value scenarios, the post-decision-making scenarios, which we had customized to be relevant to Nigeria and Unilever, we did something different. We put all the middle managers at their own tables and we said, do the regular GBV exercise. Figure out, here's a, an ethical challenge, figure out how you're going to raise it effectively or act on it effectively. But then we put the senior leaders at their own table separately, talking to each other. And we said, your task is to, is to talk about how could one of these middle managers bring this issue to you in a way that would make it easier for you to respond appropriately. So they weren't being asked, you know, it's different. It's like, how can you hear it? So when we brought them back together, I really didn't have to do anything. There was this kind of natural social contracting that went on where the middle managers were saying, you know, well, if you, well, the senior leaders were saying, well, if you wouldn't catch me in the hall and you wouldn't just come and complain, you wouldn't drop it in my lap and leave it, you wouldn't, you know, come to me with an opinion but no data, you know, and never have any solutions. And, and then the middle managers were, well, if you wouldn't kill the messenger, you know. <laughs> and, and so what was interesting is they started coming together in that way and their idea, nothing I ever planned, which was the part that inspired me, is that they then came up with this idea that they were going to create what they called the GVV deal or the GVV contract. And it was a set of maybe three or four behaviors that senior leaders committed to and three or four behaviors that the 
rest of the management agreed to saying, you know, if you will agree to do this, I will agree to do that. And they did a sort of town meeting and they signed the contract. And, and it was like really sort of establishing some new norms about what was appropriate to raise and how to raise. How to do it, right. So it wasn't just speak up culture stuff. And it wasn't just reporting. It was actually, I'm a middle manager. I'm going to come and problem solve with you. I own this too. We all own this this company and this enterprise. So that was, to me, very encouraging. That's great. This podcast is in cooperation with the Northeast Human Resources Association. We And we have the question of the podcast. And it is, what advice would you give to somebody early in their HR career? As somebody that's maybe interested in values-based leadership and just career advice, what would you recommend to them? I think one of the most powerful things for me is learning from other people about how they communicate about difficult challenges. And so I, giving with values is based on the power of stories. And so I think one of the most useful things to do anywhere in your career, but especially early in your career, is to ask people and listen to their stories. And in particular, to listen to their stories and ask for their stories of times when they have been effective. And not just to get them to tell the story and then and then this happened, but to really explain, you know, to ask them the questions about, well, what were you concerned about? How did you how did you neutralize that that resistance? How did you appeal to that interest? How did you reframe your challenge? I think gaining collecting stories, because what you're doing then is A, you're learning techniques for yourself. B, you're, you're reinforcing your own belief that it is possible to act on these issues. And C, you're building relationships with these people. Where You know, one of the things that I think happens with GBV and with the storytelling in GBV is that it can sometimes be a sort of stealth training because simply asking people to reflect on times when they have been effective and how they were effective becomes an, a, an opportunity for them to begin to... Um, play to that strength, you know, because one of the things we know is that people will generalize more easily from negative experience than from positive. And so what you want to do is give them the opportunity to to experience and re-experience and hopefully begin to generalize from their own positive past. Great advice. And this is a question I ask. It's a little bit different. I get different answers. If you could give advice, write a letter to your 25, 30-year-old self giving yourself advice about your career or what would you write to yourself? Well, I think the first message I would give is is, is have hope. <laughs> Don't <laughs> give up hope. Because <laughs> when I was 25 or 30, I was not feeling like I could find the path yet, you know, um, assume nothing. I mean, I never would have guessed that I would be doing what I'm doing now. I, at that age, I was doing a doctorate in um, literature and film. And in fact, I never would have created Giving Voice to Values if I hadn't done that because it was an education in narrative. How the way you, you know, I look at the same set of facts that you might look at and we can create entirely different narratives about what's possible. And understanding that and understanding the power of narrative and also understanding how you can reframe uh, stories is, is what GVV is all about. It's about helping people who all have the same experience, begin to think it might be possible to do something that most people say, oh, you can't do that here. So, you know, learn what you can and have faith. 
Are there misconceptions about giving voice to values that you want to share? Yes. <laughs> There's one that really is important, which is that people will often read the words giving voice to values and they'll think it's about whistleblowing or or whistleblowing externally or reporting internally, you know. And it's not that those things aren't sometimes necessary. Certainly there are times when lives are at stake or time pressure is such that Someone does feel that they need to blow the whistle externally or, you know, report internally. But a lot of times we're talking, you know, with giving waste to values, there's so many um, situations that grow incrementally that that are small pieces of behavior that build into a kind of slippery slope and then addictive cycles, and then it becomes sort of hardwired. And so giving voice to values is really about people being able to make change uh, within their team or within their group or with it, with their customer or with their manager before we get to that sort of um, higher state kind of um, dramatic situation. I, I, I can give you an example. We've been, I mentioned that Lockheed Martin was the first company to use this and they've been using it for seven or eight years now. And I was talking to them, oh, it was a year and a half or so ago where they were, they had begun to do some surveying to sort of try and understand the impact of what they were doing with GVV. And it was early days, but what they think they were finding is that yes, people were raising issues more often, but they were finding that people were bringing uh, values issues to the ethics officers in the organization and saying, look, something's going on. I think it's not right, but I want to deal with it. But will you work with me to create an effective strategy and script so I can go back and deal with it in my own team? And from, from Lockheed's perspective, this was more true culture change than simply having people come and dump things in the, in the ethics officer's laps. And right. they were feeling that, A, they were getting more and better information, but people were owning the, the, the responsibility and the desire, actually, to have an impact in their groups. And, the, and secondarily, what was interesting is, you know, they're a government contractor. So some things are ma is a mandatory reporting requirement for some kinds of behaviors uh, when they reach a certain level. And they were finding that when people did bring an issue to them that, that required investigation and that they were requesting investigation, they tended more often to be truly investigatable offenses as opposed to, you know, the false positives when people just don't know where else to go or they just want to complain or, you know, so they felt that it was operating at multiple levels. It was making their work deeper. Um, it was encouraging true culture change. And for the times when investigations were appropriate, it was a more efficient use of their time. If you could go to dinner with any living person, who would it be and why? So that's a really tough one. I thought about it a lot and I was thinking, well, you know, I want to talk to somebody who's, you know, making change in the global political arena, you know, so I was thinking about Macron in France. And then I thought, well, maybe I should talk about somebody who's really changing, you know, the way people think about the meaning of their lives, you know, and you think about people like the Dalai Lama, but who I really ended up wanting to talk to was um, Philip Pullman. He is the author of, he's a British author of a series of novels called His Dark Materials. It's been made into successful uh, theater and there's been a movie and, but it's a trilogy of books and he's actually working on a sequel 
trilogy now. It's actually considered young adult books, you know, sort of along the lines of, of Harry Potter, but it's much more, I find it much deeper in the sense of understanding human behavior. And in particular, the thing that fascinates me is that his main characters have this truly internalized sense of responsibility. And it's exhausting to read these books because what these characters have to go through. But I think it's it's inspiring, you know. So I would want to talk to Philip Pullman about that. I actually read a review and uh, a, a bio of him. I think it was in The New Yorker. And they were asking him some question about life, you know. And he said that you have, I probably will get the quote a little wrong, but it's something like you have to live your life as if life was going to win. And I thought that was a really interesting, you know, he's not going to the point, he's not an optimist, like everything's going to work out. In fact, you might say he's even a slightly pessimistic, but the fact is that life is about how you live it rather than what actually is the outcome. And I found that really uh, compelling. So Philip Pullman. That's a good one. I think I got this answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What gives you energy? We certainly have got a lot of answers about that already, but maybe about topics we haven't talked about. What gives you energy? Um, I think my favorite thing to renew and restore myself is to go out to breakfast on a Saturday morning with my partner <laughs> and, and sort of find out what we're each thinking about and how we're making sense of or not making sense of our own work, but also the wider world. And, you know, you just need to connect and bounce off someone you respect. Well, Mary, it's been so great. I'm really honored to have had the chance to interview you and continue to do some great work out in the world. You're really making a big difference. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.